Professor Paul McCulley grades the Fed on its job performance. I think this Fed has the courage, the stamina, the resolve to deal with this inflationary problem. What it means for the markets and economies on Consuelo Mack Wealth Track. Funding provided by ClearBridge Investments, Morgan LeFay Dreams Foundation, First Eagle Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, Strategus Asset Management, and Women Investing in Security and Education. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. We are in a new era of higher inflation, and the pressure is on the Fed. Inflation is running at 40-year highs, and it's coming from every angle. Food, energy, services, goods, rents, and wages, which are increasing in every sector with no let-up in sight. Two key charts provide an indication of what the Fed is up against. The first is courtesy of Wall Street's number one economist, Ed Hyman. Nominal wages and salaries, that's with inflation included, surged 11.5% in February from a year ago. As Hyman told clients, for inflation to moderate, there probably has to be some slowdown in wage inflation. Then there's the inflation gauge the Fed watches the closest. It is a very technical name, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, or PCE. Compared to the Consumer Price Index, the PCE covers a wider variety of prices in more areas of the country and adjusts to changes in consumer purchases. The PCE jumped 6.4% in February, the fastest pace since 1982, and its stripped-down version called the Core PCE Index, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, rose 5.4% from the year before, the sharpest rise since 1983. Well, is the Fed up to the challenge? Can it rein in inflation without causing a recession? And how much are its expansive monetary policies to blame for the inflationary pressures that have been building for months? What can we expect as borrowers and investors? We have lots of questions to ask this week's guest, but we know from his past performance, he can take them all in stride. He is Paul McCulley, currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown Business School, where he teaches a very timely multidisciplinary course combining law, economics, monetary policy, global finance, and behavioral finance. A wealth track guest since our 2005 launch, McCulley made his reputation as a great investor and financial thought leader at bond giant PIMCO, where until 2010, he was senior partner, founding member of its investment policy committee, author of the influential monthly Global Central Bank Focus, and manager of its huge short-term trading desk, overseeing an estimated $400 billion in assets. He is still in demand as a speaker, writer, and all-around font of wisdom on economic and Fed policy. I started our discussion with his assessment of the inflation challenges facing the Fed. Are we in a new era of higher inflation? We, without a doubt, have a cyclical inflation problem right now. I would consider it, however, a high-quality problem. And I don't mean to be trite in saying that. I see the inflation we have right now as a natural consequence that we collectively did an amazing job from a macro perspective of handling the pandemic. We've had an amazing V recovery and we're back to full employment. And across a lot of measures, the economy is further than it was two years ago. And that is a success story. 
the negative side of that success story is we've got an inflationary echo. And the inflationary echo is much louder. And Paul, you said cyclical problem. Inflation is a cyclical problem. For coming from the man who founded and ran the secular forum at PIMCO, why do you say it's cyclical and not secular? But I focus in on cyclical because that's the here and now, and it's going to determine short-term monetary policy and uh, what the markets do. Uh, but indeed, I think this could very well be a secular reversal on inflation, not just a cyclical problem. Secular meaning that looking out over the next 10 to 20 years, the predominant tailwind in our economy uh, should likely be higher inflation. Whereas the last 10 to 20 years, the tailwind was obviously disinflationary. So I think we are at a secular turning point on a whole bunch of fronts. Uh, first and foremost uh, is that I think we're at uh, a pivot point on globalization. And this is prior to, uh, the, uh, to the war in, uh, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, we could see it as a consequence of the pandemic that global supply chains aren't as reliable uh, as we have thought for the last several decades. Uh, so I think we were going to have, uh, after the pandemic, a move towards less globalization. Uh, and I think that's particularly accelerated by what's going on now in the geopolitical side. So I think we actually will be in the next decade or so uh, dealing with um, more than just cyclical inflation pressures we will have secular inflation pressures. And note I said pressures, not uh, necessarily a problem. Uh, the Fed's been below its inflation target for the last decade, and uh, that had a lot of negative consequences. And I think over the next day, decade, we'll probably be above it uh, a good chunk of the time, but it will have a positive consequence in that that's how labor gets a bigger share of national income, is when labor has pricing power. And post-pandemic, it's emerged, and it hasn't had it for not just 10 years, but more like this century. Uh, so looking forward, I see labor with pricing power, which is a fantastic thing for democracy, but for inflation, it will tend to be an upward bias in contrast to the downward bias of the last couple of decades. You were a primary advocate of the fact that we needed monetary stimulus and fiscal stimulus, you know, the modern monetary theory uh, concept of just pouring money into the economy so that it didn't stall and didn't go into a depression. Now we're living with the aftermath of that. So are you giving the Fed credit for the pickup in, in inflation that we've seen that, in fact, that that modern monetary theory did work to reinflate the economy? I'm giving the Fed a supporting role in the inflation we have right now, not the sole role. Uh, we dealt with the pandemic as a society, as a democracy, by essentially melding 
monetary policy or the Fed's balance sheet uh, and fiscal policy and the Treasury's balance sheet. It was all of the above, all in, uh, in order to prevent a modern day depression. And it wasn't so much about stimulating the economy, but replacing lost income because we had shut down the economy, not because of some economic uh, excess necessarily at all, but because of the public health uh, issue. So I think that monetary and fiscal policy working together uh, were exquisite during the pandemic, but in doing a great job, you end up with an inflationary echo, at which point you get a huge divergence from the theories or the thesis of modern monetary theory or MMT. As you know, I have never been an MMTer, but sometimes I will look like one because when you're in a situation like we were in the pandemic, the right policy response is going to look like MMT. However, when it's successful, then it's hugely important that we go back to the conventional doctrine of a separation between fiscal and monetary policy, or bluntly put, back to a regime of central bank independence, where the central bank can lean against inflationary pressures, either cyclical or even secular, that we have a bulwark against inflation that's beyond Congress, because ultimately Congress is inherently a inflationary institution. And I don't say that in a negative way whatsoever, it's just the nature of the beast. It's the nature of democracy in some respects, uh, in that our representatives naturally want to spend more than they tax. So they're structurally putting money into the economy. Uh, that's how you get reelected. Therefore, right. you need to have an institutional protection against that. And that's a good, strong, robust, independent central bank. And that's exactly what J-PAL has been establishing again in the last half of years uh, after his pivot last fall away from a pandemic era monetary policy to one that is more balanced and also right now keenly focused on leaning against those cyclical inflationary pressures, which will minimize the risk that they become a secular problem. So that is the, I think it's $30 trillion question, <laughs> basically is the Fed, uh, if you look at what uh, M2 is up to 22 trillion in the last two years, and uh, and its balance sheet is up to nine trillion from four trillion over the last two years. So uh, the the question is, you know, is this Fed going to be up to this challenge? They've been up to the job of keeping inflation low basically uh, all of my adult lifetime. Uh, I graduated from uh, university in '81. It's been over 40 years. And yeah. Paul Volcker was at the helm, and that's when we had, you know, the inflation issue. I'm not talking about Paul Volcker. We have we have kind of Paul Volcker-esque problems, but we have a very different Fed. 
my question and the critics' questions are, you know, is this Fed up to the task of handling kind of Paul Volcker-esque type of problems? Why do you think they are? I think this Fed has the courage, the stamina, the resolve to deal with this inflationary problem. Yeah. Are they willing to take a recession? And I think the answer is yes, not because they want one, not because they are forecasting one. They are both aspiring to and forecasting a soft landing. And I think that is doable, though certainly uh, not a done deal. And I think it's not just their individual courage, though I certainly would salute um, uh, uh, Chair Powell uh, and his team for what they've done the last couple of years. But I think the American public uh, and our body politic is communicating in the Washington macro circles that the American people really don't want inflation. Increasing prices for everything that people have in day-to-day -day budgets does not make for a happy citizenry. So I think the Fed has courage, but I think it's courage that's rooted in the will of the people. And I think we're hearing pretty loudly uh, from the political arena uh, that the Fed's independence is cherished. And essentially, Congress has said, Mr. Powell, we really don't want you to create a recession. But if you need to do that to deal with this inflation problem, it's not going to be on us. It's going to be on you from a communications perspective. We're going to blame you, even though we're giving you permission to do it. That's the nature of the dance between the Fed uh, and Congress. But clearly, the breadth of the inflation we have right now uh, is unacceptable. And I think the Fed has a mandate to deal with it. And part of that will be uh, on the housing side of the market, because a lot of the inflation coming through now is not really related to the pandemic per se, but because we've had such a boom in housing. And uh, I think the Fed has a mandate to uh, lean against this um, uh, very uh, frisky, if I can use that word, property market. Paul, I'm listening to what you're saying very closely because you have basically a 40-year track record of being dead on about the Fed's intentions and what they're doing. Uh, you know, you've been incredibly accurate in understanding what's going on in the Fed uh, and also in, in the body politic. The critical question is, can the Fed cool inflation without a recession? You're saying it's doable. Why do you have that confidence that it is doable? It's doable, but that's not table pounding that the Fed okay. by itself has the ability to produce it. I think that there's a constellation of forces that can lead to inflation coming down. One of those is going to be tighter monetary policy, and we're going to get that. But I also think that the supply chains associated with the pandemic uh, are going to um, uh, ameliorate over time. But there is a natural dynamic in the economy that points in that direction. 
uh, and it's sometimes called the bullwhip effect. Uh, and it actually is really rooted in behavioral economics uh, in that once it was clear we actually had literal supply chain problems in the wake of the pandemic and, and people could not get something and merchants couldn't get inventory, then you started to see a huge push to get it at any price. So we had this sort of collective urge to get ahead of the shortage. And in the process of doing that, we drove up inflation, but we also had people double and tripling ordering just to get what they wanted. So you saw a big desire to increase inventories. And once inventories get back to a comfortable level, and actually I think, you know, we as citizens will be able to gauge that in some respects when we see all the groceries on the shelf at the store, and even more importantly, uh, new cars on the car lot. We'll uh, see when inventories are back to a post-COVID normal, at which point I think some of the demand for stuff uh, it will naturally abate. Uh, which will bring inflation down. Can, can we get a soft landing? Yes. So you got the Fed leaning on demand. You got the supply side of the economy correcting itself in the fullness of time. And also, uh, we are moving into a period of physical drag in the sense that most of the pandemic programs uh, are rolling off. And so therefore, we're not going to have the fiscal stimulus and we'll have physical drag. Uh, so I think there are a whole bunch of things that can give us uh, a, uh, um, a soft landing. I think a lot of things can go wrong as well. Uh, so in order to get a soft landing, you need those forces working and a lot of good luck. And unfortunately, we as an economy, not the stock market, obviously, but we as an economy uh, in the last several years have had a pretty nasty string of bad luck. Just bad luck. Stuff happens. Let's talk about the financial markets. The bond market just suffered its, what, worst quarter in decades recently. For bond investors, you know, what are you advising? What do you, what do you think we're facing? It's the beginning of a secular bear market for bonds, I think, uh, which is meaning that over time, the bond market will follow the predominant bias on inflation. And I think the bias on inflation secularly is higher. Mm -hmm. I think from a cyclical perspective, we're pretty deep into it right now. So essentially, uh, from a cyclical perspective, the bond market is not going to be nasty like it's been in the last six months because it's already uh, discounted what the Fed's going to do over the next 12 uh, to uh, uh, 18 months, or you know, put bluntly, you don't have to go to hell twice uh, for the same discounting of Fed tightening deed. Uh, so I, I'm not a, a table pounding bear or bull of bonds right now. Though so if you push me uh, a bit, I would lean towards uh, the bear side in the sense of saying, rather than having a fund that is the duration or the interest rate risk of the market, sometimes known as the aggregate index, sort of the 
S&P 500 equivalent of the bond market, rather than having that amount of market risk on interest rates. That would be more a intermediate or a short-term um, bond fund as that anchor in your overall portfolio. Um, I think interest rates uh, need to be higher over time in our economy uh, for it to function well. Uh, and that unfortunately means that uh, it's going to be a bear market in bonds. So my forecast is predicated on what I think uh, is going to happen in the economy, which I think actually should happen in the economy as well. But from a standpoint of giving portfolio counsel, uh, I can't say warm and fuzzy things about uh, backing up the truck and buying bonds here. It simply would not be appropriate. Now, if it turns out the risk case for the Fed uh, a year from now, not you know the next months ahead, but a year from now or 18 months from now, is we do get a hard landing, then I would become quite bullish uh, on um, uh, on bonds for the simple reason we'll get the uh, the Fed uh, not worrying about inflation and worrying about the recession. But right now, I would not be uh, pushing the frontier of risk at all on the bond side. And quite frankly, that holds on the equity side as well. A year ago, you were you know, advocating uh, kind of recovery stocks and the you know, beneficiaries of, of a recovery. Um, and so, you know, cyclicals and, uh, you know, value over growth. The last year has been a long, strange trip in many respects. <laughs> uh, it's been, been absolutely fascinating. And, and also think in terms of the last couple years in the same uh, uh, way. And that over the last two years, you had the wicked bear market, obviously, at the beginning of the pandemic. But you had the most explosive two-year rally and risk assets of my lifetime off of that bottom. And part of the reason is the Fed was unambiguously committed to nurturing a hot economy. It's part of their new right. strategic framework of not being preemptive of higher inflation, but actually letting the economy rip until higher inflation is actually visible. Uh, so I don't think the markets are overvalued relative to uh, where the Fed's going versus six months ago. So okay, I think okay. you're sort of in that fair zone. But I don't think they're cheap either, uh, because uh, to say they're cheap, you're going to have to be forecasting a kinder, gentler Fed. And I simply don't see that on the horizon. This Fed is serious. Uh, about demonstrating its modern day, and I stress modern day, Volcker credibility. What would your one investment be for a long-term diversified portfolio? A lot of people have just stayed out of the globalization side of things and have domestic only portfolios. Um, and while I don't think that uh, it's without risk, uh, I still, um, uh, very much think that if you don't have any emerging market exposure in your portfolio, you need to have some. Not a lot, but the longer is your time frame, the more that's where the growth is going to be for a lot of reasons, notwithstanding the pullback from globalization.
Thank you, Paul McCauley, for joining us on WealthTrack. As always, a pleasure to have you. My pleasure, Consuela. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is a familiar one. It is don't fight the Fed. The nation's central bank is at a major turning point in monetary policy, shifting from a decade of historic easing of credit conditions to potentially aggressive tightening of them. The beneficiaries of easy credit, record low interest rates, low inflation, and massive amounts of liquidity are under pressure. Those include the investment winners of the last decade, growth stocks, speculative companies, initial public offerings, venture capital and private equity, high yield and longer maturity bonds that are more sensitive to changes in interest rates. The winners of tightening Fed policy are high quality companies generating dependable profits and cash flow that they are using to pay dividends and buy back stocks now. The old saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, is appropriate for the new Fed era. If you haven't done so already, some portfolio rebalancing from the old winners into the new is in order. Well, next week, as top-performing growth fund manager Alex Umansky's Barron Global Advantage Fund hits a rough spot, he is doubling down on some of his hardest-hit high-tech companies. He'll explain why. In this week's Extra Feature, Paul McCauley discusses why he is paying much more attention to geopolitics than he has in the past. In the meantime, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thank you for watching as so many of us celebrate Passover and Easter. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one. 